Football MX Network production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. You know a new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's Industry Seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires, Fly Racing, Blends All Racing Motor Oil, Works Connection, Plum Creek Funding, 612 Suspension, Fast Foundry, and Pro Glow. Welcome to another episode of the Industry Seating Podcast. My name is Jason Thomas, and I'm your host. And uh, it's been a minute, what, a little over a week? I guess that's kind of a long time in the podcast world to not have one. I considered doing one this week after the French GP and uh, honestly just kind of got busy. Figured I could wait until after we wrapped up uh, the race in Spain that was just outside uh, Madrid, for those of you who are familiar with Spain, which is probably not a lot. But anyway, they were at Into Xanadu, a pretty new track within the last few years. And it's kind of a man-made type track. If you watched, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but it, it's kind of like a smaller feel, uh, similar to kind of Mantova, where it's got this kind of stadium vibe. And the, the fans are really right on top of the action and really loud. Uh, and, and I don't know how I feel about it as far as do I think it's good for the sport or bad for the sport. I don't know. Um, I do like the variety, though. I think they're cool to have some rounds like that. Uh, it just gives a different feel. I don't think every race should be like that. That's for sure. You know, I think having the the rich history and tradition of these older, the old school tracks where it's really flowing and, and natural terrain is that's kind of what makes motocross motocross. So I certainly wouldn't want the whole sport to go that way. But I, I think to have some like that are, are cool. Like it just has a, a completely different look, feel, vibe to it. All, you know, different atmosphere altogether. You know, I, I think the fans can be much more involved because they're right on top of the action. But before we get too far into the racing, let's thank the sponsors, uh, Pirelli Tires, Guts Racing, Plum Creek Funding, Fast Foundry, Works Connection, Premier Vapor Blasting of Georgia, Blenzol Oils, Grant Stone Boots. I actually got some new Grant Stone Boots today. Uh, 612 Suspension, Pro Glow Wash with that promo code MOTO15, and Fly Racing. So what happened? Well, we didn't talk about France, uh, and we're, you know, we're a week away from that, so I won't spend any time on it, but we really saw Jeffrey Hurling start to reemerge uh, and really try to take over this series again. He was able to recapture the red plate, which you know, signifies having the points lead. And then we went into Spain today, and, and I, I didn't really know what to expect because these tracks being so hard-packed, you know, France is really hard, and then you go to uh, Madrid, which is your typical clay, you know, Spanish track. They aren't what you would consider ideal, in my opinion, for Jeffrey Hurlings. You know, I would think Fevra, it's a track he would look forward to, as well as Tim Geiser. Uh, of course, Jorge Prado, it's his home race. All those guys, if, if you're looking at the schedule and where you're going to attack Jeffrey Hurlings, if, if I guess there's a way to do that, these are the rounds where you need to get it done. And 
it's only going to get more of that when we go into uh, Trentino or Arco de Trento. The next three, there's a triple header up next. But this span, starting in France, going to Spain, the three rounds um, in Arco de Trento that are up next, that's a five-race stretch of hard-packed tracks. And those guys know that, yes, okay, Jeffrey's great at that as well, but he's not as good as he is in the sand. Like, trying to beat Jeffrey in the sand is futile typically like i'm not saying it's impossible but it's a really it's a tough ask right it's not where you're gonna consider that you have an edge i guess is the most simple way to put it these tracks i felt like geister had a really nice opportunity here to gain points back roman the same same thing these are tracks they ride really well they are hard pack specialists and they've they have improved their sand game and all these guys are trying to do the same thing they're trying to continue their excellence in their specialty, whether it's sand or hard pack, respectively. And then they're trying to reduce their deficiency in these other things. So like for Roman, if you've, if you've paid attention to Roman Fever's interviews this year, especially in the preseason, he made a very uh, a big point to make sure everybody knew how much work he did in the offseason in the sand. He spent a ton of time in Sardinia riding at Rio Asardo which is as sandy as it gets. He spent a ton of time at Wommel because they know that they can't have that hole in their game. You can't try to win a world championship if you can't ride one specific dirt very well. If you're going to give up a ton of points every time you go to the sand, like it's not going to work. Not, not the way the series is now. You know, a few years ago when Jeffrey was hurt and Tony was, you know, not doing so great and maybe Geiser was out, like there were opportunities when Fever won the, his championship, he wasn't as great there, but the series wasn't as deep. And the same thing for Geiser. He's put in a ton of work. He won Wommel last year or 2019. I can't remember, but he made a really strong point recently of letting people know that he's gotten better in the sand. And I think they're doing the right thing. They're putting in tons of work to shore up areas of vulnerability. And that's absolutely what they should be doing. But when they go to tracks like France last weekend at La Capelle Marvel, you go to Into Xanadu this weekend, these are the ones where you've got to make the most of it. Like you have to beat Jeffrey Hurlings on a day like today and last weekend and the next three. That's how you're going to win a championship. Capitalizing on the days where you have, where you feel anyway, where most people that are analyzing the series would feel you have the advantage you absolutely have to make the most of those days. You have to gain points on your arrival. Otherwise, you don't really have a chance because when you go back to the sand, most people, and I'm sure they as well, like you know, deep down in their subconscious are assuming that they're going to have a tough time beating Jeffrey Hurlings. And Jorge's great in the sand as well. That's where their strengths are. So it's a really long-winded way of saying that Jeffrey Hurlings really came through because you look at him battling through a bad start. He goes 3-1 on the day today and captures the overall. Most importantly, there being the overall because he gained more points on both Tim Geiser and Roman Febra. And it looked like Febra had a great opportunity. You watch the that first moto, Febra gets the job done. Even Prado gets in between them, which, you know, Febra had to be very thankful for that Prado was able to step up and have a great moto. So Febra cut the points lead down to maybe 
one point. I think it was a one point advantage going into to race two, but then Febra blows it, gets a terrible start in the second race. And yeah, he's, I mean, he fought through the pack. He rode as, as well as he could and it, he did everything possible, but at the end of the day, he blew it in the second race. He gave all those points back plus more. And you cannot do that coming down the wire in a championship. Like you have to be as close to flawless as possible. And to Tim Geiser, he didn't do any better. He had an off day. You look at Geiser's day overall, and it was kind of a disaster. Crashes, goes off the track multiple times. And to me, I don't, you know, who knows, right? He could have just made mistakes. They could have all been isolated incidents. But when you look at his overall day, he looked like he was feeling the pressure to me. And you just kind of analyze it on a, a, like a macro level, like big picture, he looked like he was nervous or not, maybe not nervous, but rattled a little bit. Trying too hard might be the, the right way to go about it. It just looked like he couldn't make up time on Jeffrey. He couldn't get to the front and he started overriding the track and making big mistakes. And they all know that this title is coming down to the wire. They all know that they need to make up points to, you know, they don't want it to come down to the last moto, but Geiser was just kind of all over the place. I mean, he made multiple mistakes and to be fair, the track was very easy to make mistakes on. You could see the ruts grabbing guys, you know, ripping their, their foot off the foot peg. And it was a, it was a very easy track to have a, a difficult day on, if that makes sense. So I don't want to put all the blame on Geiser, but man, he, we haven't seen a, a lot of that old school Geiser, big crash, always finds a way to get up. I'll give him credit for that, but he, he has been pretty in control this year. And he just wasn't that guy. It was kind of the old school guys where he's taking a lot of chances going off the track. I mean, he went off the track several times. He did have that big crash in the first moto, you know, got up again. He, he seems like he never gets hurt. Um, did break his collarbone a few weeks ago. So I, I have to be careful with that assessment, but he has this reputation. You know, a lot of guys actually refer to him as Gumby because he uh, doesn't seem to matter how hard he crashes. He finds a way to get up. Uh, but that was just kind of the, the feeling I got from him is he was just feeling the pressure a little bit, maybe thinking about the championship too much, maybe pressing the envelope a little bit too much. And on that track, you couldn't press. You couldn't take big chances because it would, it would make you pay for it. Like the penalties on that track were pretty heavy because the ruts were super deep and it would, you know, you just had to be so precise and you know, really it was a perfect track for a rider like Jorge Prado. And I think if you had, if you were able to remove the injury that Prado suffered recently, you know, he had that huge crash at uh, Teutschenthal right after winning race one. I think if you remove that crash, I really believe Prado goes 1-1 today. But that downtime that he had, you know, the, the trauma his body suffered, the downtime, because he probably didn't do anything leading up to La Capelle Maribel last weekend. You know, it was just full rest and therapy all week. Probably tried to keep his heart rate down, you know, let his muscles heal, all the things that he hurt. Then he races, had a horrible day. He couldn't, you know, you could just tell he was, he was still hurting. He was nowhere near his normal form. And then he probably rested all week again. Maybe he rode once this week, but he probably is really rusty. His body isn't anywhere near 100% yet because it's, it's just still working through those injuries. And then I, I think it's just really a tough ask for him to beat 
the likes of Febra and Hurlings and stuff over the course of 70 minutes. So I thought Prado did, he rode really well. I just thought it was a day, if you take that crash away from Teutschenthal, I think that Prado probably goes 1-1 because he, he's super fit. He, I don't think he would have gotten tired. I don't think he would have allowed Fever to get around. And uh, yeah, still a good day, but um, I just think it was a day that he, he will probably look back on, even, maybe even today, maybe he's reflected on it already and said, if I'm 100%, if I'm healthy today, I'm, you know, I, I win the Grand Prix. That, that's just kind of how I saw it. But it doesn't matter. Like, ifs and buts, that's not how the sport works. You know, Geiser could say the same thing. If I didn't break my collarbone, so what? Jeffrey Herlings could say the same thing. If I didn't break my shoulder, uh, you know, two months ago, the series looks a lot different. That's just how these things go. Uh, but as I was watching Prado in the second half of both races, I was just thinking, yeah, you can you can see what even a small injury, right? Just taking you out of your routine where you can't train, you can't ride, you can't do the normal things that keep you in that 1% level, right? There's only, there are very few riders in the, on this planet that can perform at the level Jorge Prado can. And, and I don't care which series you're talking about. And if you do things to disrupt the, you know, all the routine things that allow Prado to be that good, you see what happens. He's just not quite as sharp. So um, good race for all of them. Prada was great. Febra was great. Uh, Geiser was good. I don't even, I don't want to say Geiser was great. Cause I don't think he was, I think he made a ton of mistakes and, uh, but you look at Hurlings and I've kind of waited to talk about him last because I think he's the one that has stepped up here. He is the one that is really taken advantage of the opportunity that all of them have had. They were all really close in points going into the last few rounds, right? Jeffrey had a ton of points to make up. And then when Geiser injured himself, it opened the door. It allowed Jeffrey to get back onto an even playing field after his injury. And now Prado's, you know, Prado's the, the latest victim of this injury bug that he lost a ton of points. But they've all gone into, I, I thought going into France was really, it's anybody's series with, uh, there was uh, six races to go entering France. And so far, Jeffrey Hurlings has made the most of it. He's the one that's capitalizing. He's the one that is uh, really taking it to these guys. And he hasn't won every race, but he's won both overalls. And that's the critical thing. He took the points lead. He extended it again today and not by a lot. You know, he went in with a, uh, what, a six point lead over Febra. He leaves with a 12 point lead, but that's, it's a positive day, you know, especially leaving a race in France where Febra, I think a lot of people felt like he was the favorite. Jeffrey gets the overall. And then you go to Spain where I think it was kind of up for grabs, but at the same time, I don't think most people expected Jeffrey to win today, or I, I didn't anyway. Uh, I thought maybe, I, I kind of thought Prado would win, but I didn't, just didn't know as where his health was. But I, I thought Jeffrey would just try to kind of keep the status quo. Like if he could leave with a six-point lead or better, I think he would have considered that a success regardless of what his overall position was. But, you know, I guess he decided to up the ante because his recovery in the first moto and then his second moto was just awesome. Like he just got the job done. He got around those guys and then just kind of checked out and then made life easy on himself. Uh, but just a great job from Hurlings. And I think he is, he's kind of separating himself a little bit here. We'll see how these next three rounds in Italy go. Well, I guess the next five are all in Italy, but 
I think these next three, the Trentino, which Arco de Trento or Trentino, it's called both, are the most critical rounds of the series. Uh, you know, I've said it for a while. It's very easy to be victim of the moment and say that one round is more critical than the other. But I think it's all coming down to these three. If Jeffrey can perform at these three and keep the points lead, like he doesn't even have to extend it. Just keep the points lead, you know, double digits. You go into Mantova where he's really good. We already saw that a few weeks ago, how good he is at Mantova. I think he would be very content with that. So it's a great track for Tim Geiser, and it's a great track for Roman Febra. There is actually a section at Trentino that is kind of called like Geiser's Corner. I don't know. the. I think that's maybe what it's called. I, I, I should know that. But there's a specific area of the track where all of the people come over from Geiser's homeland and will be in this area going crazy. And you know Geiser's going to know that. He's going to be pumped up. This was the track where he really kind of took the torch from Tony Cairoli a couple years ago. This is where he, I think he made it known that he was going to win that championship that day. And yeah, Tony got hurt, which changed, changed the feel. But you could see the changing of the guard happening, and it went down at this track. So watch for Geyser coming in healthy. Try to turn the tide. He really needs to change the narrative next Sunday. And I will be there. I, I head over on Thursday. Fly, I'll fly into Venice, drive over to uh, that area, Riva, Riva del Garda area. It's a really beautiful area of Italy. And uh, so I'll be on site. But I, I, think, I think it's a critical, that first round is critical for him to, to do some damage. Like he needs to get the win. And, and you could say the same thing for Roman Febra. They both need to beat Jeffrey. They have to put some doubt into Jeffrey's mind. They can't let this confidence continue to grow and manifest itself because Jeffrey's already super confident. That's just who he is as a person, but you let that start expanding. And I believe that Jeffrey goes into this zone where he feels almost superhuman, right? Like, I just think that's who, that's his persona. Like he's already larger than life and he already has a big ego. There's nothing wrong with that. I think you need some ego in this sport because it's so difficult. Like you need to believe in yourself. But I think he goes into this zone where he feels almost unbeatable at times if you let him get to that level where he starts winning, he gets on a roll, he think become or he starts to, you know, if you're it was football, you would almost like reading your own your own headlines and your own news clips. But I think he starts feeding into the hype and that starts growing his own confidence level and you know Jeffrey Hurling's with confidence above his own normal level like a, a really high level of confidence is a really dangerous proposition to the rest of this field so it's easy to say every week oh yeah the next round's the most critical uh, but I, I think the next three are wildly important if if you're going to try to wrestle this championship away from Jeffrey Hurling's you got to do it and you got to do it now because you can see the confidence building you can see just the charge at the end of race one, and then the way he came, you know, he just exerted kind of dominance in, in race two. Like, they let him get near the front in race two, and then it was like, I've got you guys. Like, you, you're you lucky that I didn't start anywhere near you in race one because you see what happens when I get out, you know, anywhere near the front in race two. So, really, really important day um, coming up here next Sunday. Let's talk about MX2 real quick and then uh, talk some silly season 
for me, you know, MX2 has gotten no, I don't want to say boring. That's such a lazy, it's just lazy analysis, but the championship's pretty much over. Renault has a gigantic lead over everybody. I mean, it's coming up on a hundred points now or whatever. You know, the, the battle between he and Tom Vial, I think is probably the biggest storyline that I've been following. Uh, and really to me, it's more about who's the alpha in the MX2 class. You know, they're both French, so there's something to that. They both want to be the top guy. And Vial, I think most people would agree that Vial would, would be the championship favorite if he hadn't gotten hurt. So Renault, I think, is always in the back of his mind going, I need to beat Vial because everybody thinks that this, I, I, I backed into this, right? Geertz was hurt. Vial was hurt. I think Renault wants to beat these guys straight up just for the mental game, the mental side of it, and bragging rights more than anything. I, I think everybody's kind of resigned to the fact that he's going to win the title, barring injury. Like, that's kind of over. But I think at this point, it's, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, confidence and ego. I don't, you know, I, I hate to use the word ego because it can have such a negative con- uh, connotation. But I think it is. I, I really do. I think that Renault and Vial, and maybe Geertz a little bit too, all look at each other and they're like, I'm the best guy in this class. Injuries, be damned, take all that stuff out of it. I, I really think they all kind of look at it like I'm the best guy. And each week we're seeing who is and who isn't. And I thought it was a, a pretty big statement for Renault today to get the overall. But you look at Vial and he's winning a lot. You know, he, he's, he's getting a lot of the overalls and, and it didn't go his way today in, this, in race two. Um, but that's really all there is left for me. You know, other than just the bragging rights and the you know, race within a race that's going on the mental side of it. Uh, the MX2 is, is just kind of going through the motions for me at this point. The champion, the air has kind of been let out of the championship, so to speak. So uh, we'll see what happens down the stretch, but I, I'm just more looking at, you know, Renault and Vial kind of battling to see who's, who's the top dog. Uh, interesting note for Renault. It sounds like he is going to the factory 450 Yamaha team for next year, which I don't know, man. He, he doesn't have to move up. You know, that, that class, it's 23 and you age out. He's not there. I think he's only 21. And he's going to move up anyway, which I don't think I agree with. And, and I'm sure he doesn't care what my opinion is. But I would not be doing that if I'm him. I would stay down. I would negotiate a contract with Yamaha to defend my championship in MX2, make some money, maybe even stay two more years. Because I don't know if Renault has been watching the MXGP class, but those guys aren't messing around. They are incredibly good, and in, that class is incredibly deep. Go ask, uh, yeah, Volanderin and any of those guys, Ben Watson. Go ask them how that MXGP class is. Go, see, go ask them how fast those guys go. And when you don't have to move up yet, and you can rack up wins and bonuses and all kinds of stuff, to me, that sounds like a pretty good plan and then you have time. You have time to keep maturing. You have time to continue to improve your game. And when you do have to move up, when you're 23, move up when you're the most ready. You are your best self. I, that's, to me, the smartest plan. And he probably doesn't care. He, you know, I don't think he's looking to me for advice. But I, I've watched this sport for a long time, and I've seen a lot of guys move up too early. And I'm not going to say he's not ready. I don't think that's fair. But I think there's... There's a reason why Vial's staying down. 
You look at him, he's, he's a past champion. He looks pretty ready, and he's staying down another year too. And I just think it's the smart angle. You want to be as ready as humanly possible to move into MXGP right now. Otherwise, you see what happens. Look at Ben Watson. He, sh- he didn't do terribly. I mean, he's fine. He got some t- top 10s in there. He's ridden okay. But he's not going to have a ride because he's not able to go with the likes of Prado and Hurlings and those guys. I don't think he should be expected to. But look how quickly you get casted to the side. So it's just a really tough bar to consider success. Like it, it's a, the class is just brutal, absolutely brutal. And I just don't know that I think this is the smartest decision. I actually, I, I'm going to just come out and say it. I think it's a bad decision. I think he should stay down. I think he should try to negotiate as much money po- as possible to be your defending MX2 champion and keep that factory Yamaha MX2, which is, used to be Kamea Racing, keep a contender on that bike in that class winning races. Like that, they have such a strong lineup when you look at Geertz, Benestan, and Renault. Like, that's a great team. Why would you want to break that up? Uh, so, yeah, whatever. Again, not my call to make. I'm just one man with a voice. But I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's the right way to go. So keep an eye on that. I don't know when the announcement will come, but it sounds like that's a done deal. And then he would be replacing Ben Watson on that Yamaha team. Some of the, uh, the silly season drama that's going on out there right now, really the main spot that's left up for grabs is the second spot at Kawasaki. Now, Kawasaki's undergoing a huge change, if you didn't know. They are, in their current form, they are known as KRT, which is Kawasaki Racing Team. It's a French-based team, French ownership well, that contract with Kawasaki is dissolving after 13 years. So that's a huge fundamental change for Kawasaki Japan, right? Who funds that program. They are now giving that program to Ice One Racing, who is owned by Formula One star Kimi Raikkonen. That's a, I mean, that's a monumental shift as far as the factory Kawasaki team who, who, run, who owns it, who runs it, uh, everything about it. So that was big news a, a month or two ago. It's not even really announced yet, you know, PR and all that. It'll come after the season. But that's all happening. They will keep Roman Fevre. He re-signed with Kawasaki Japan, which will become Ice One Racing, uh, maybe three weeks ago, something like that. So he will be their star. But there is a second spot that is open on that team. And everyone that doesn't have a ride is going after it. I'm shocked that they're not considering Ben Watson. I don't really know why, but it sounds like it's going to be between uh, Francois Barame, Barame, who was on uh, the FNH Kawasaki team, just actually left that team to get a shot on this Kawasaki 450. He will be in Trentino on that motorcycle. And maybe, excuse me, uh, Calvin Vlanderen. Sounds like he's in the running for that, that bike as well. I don't know. I, to me... It's, I think Vlandern is the better choice there. I would honestly be really considering Ben Watson too. Uh, but that's, I mean, that's a great team, great spot, factory equipment. Uh, and yeah, I'm sure those guys are nonstop on the phone to Auntie Perrinen and uh, what, who is their team manager. I don't think it's Auntie's choice from my sources. It doesn't sound like Auntie gets to make the call. It sounds like that Japan, Kawasaki Japan is making the call on this. So watch for that. See how Bois Rame does. If he performs well, look for him to get that spot. If he struggles, 
look for maybe Vlaanderen to get that spot. Uh, but that's really the big opening for, uh, for that team and uh, really the, the big silly season news. The rest of the silly season stuff is all about apparel deals. Everyone's kind of up, right? And DeCarly KTM is up. Uh, Tony Cairoli is up as far as a personal deal. The Kawasaki Ice One Racing team that I just spoke about, their uh, gear contract is up. Uh, so there's just a lot of moving parts and pieces for all those deals. And uh, yeah, some, some pretty big asking prices. I've been involved in, in those negotiations for Fly Racing. And there's a lot of jockeying for position going on. We absolutely want to be a part of some of those programs. And we're trying. I'm trying. I'm constantly on WhatsApp. For those of you who know what's, what WhatsApp is, it's uh, yeah, kind of an international uh, messaging system that a lot of, especially a lot of foreign countries use. Like if I'm in Europe or I'm in Australia, everyone uses WhatsApp. Uh, so I've been in constant contact with those guys over the weekend, trying to sort these things out, trying to negotiate and make offers. And uh, when I go back to Italy this coming weekend, that's what I'll be doing. Anytime I'm not on screen doing uh, you know, the, the broadcast with Paul Malin, I will likely be in meetings trying to work out deals. And nothing's assured. We may end up with nothing again. You know, we're, we're trying to make smart offers and, and partner with the best teams and riders that we can. Sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes you get outbid. Uh, sometimes they choose to stay with a European-based company. Like all those things are in play, uh, and it's just a it's a giant game of chess. You know, it really is. Uh, because just to give you guys an example of what can happen, you know, if you go after one team, like say you circle Team X as your your big wish list, like that's who you want. You know, you're going after them. What if you don't get them and you kind of blew off Team Y and Z? that are also great programs, but they weren't your first pick. And you kind of pushed into the side, you're still speaking with them, but you've been holding back, you haven't made them a firm offer because you can't have three or four offers out there because what if they all said yes? You're screwed then. Like, you're probably, I'm probably gonna get fired. And you know, Max Steffens, who is our marketing manager, we can't do that. So we have to make one or two offers that we know if they both said yes, we can cover on our budget, and then if those don't work, then you immediately shift to the next deal and try to get much more serious, much more quickly. But it's this giant dance of, are, do you think you're going to get your primary wish? Because if you, if you don't think you're going to get it, then you probably need to just go ahead and withdraw that offer and, and exit the game. And you don't want them to be playing you off of someone else because that happens a lot, right? Say you make an offer to the team that you really, really want. But they don't necessarily think that you're the deal they're going to end up with. Well, they will take your offer and go shop it to whoever they think that they're going to end up with, right? And they're trying to get the number up. They're negotiating the the offer higher and higher and higher to get the most money. So you have to diagnose and assess every situation. So Team X that I really, really want, I'm speaking as, you know, first person as myself and speaking for Fly Racing this team, I, I really want them. Well, if I'm looking at it and I'm negotiating and I'm getting a tone that they're not really taking the offer seriously and I think that they're just using it to shop around, I have to seriously consider pulling out of that, like just reaching out and saying, hey, we really appreciate the opportunity to even negotiate, but we're going to have to duck out of this because we have this other 
uh, possible scenario that we need to move forward with. And they are ready to move forward. We are ready to move forward. So I need to withdraw this offer that we previously made. That's something that I'm going to have to look at doing in some situations because we have multiple offers out and all of them can't be accepted, right? So we have to manage that risk and, and really prioritize and assess really smartly, okay? Is this likely to happen? If, if it's not likely to happen, then maybe let's get out. Let's just get out right now and let's apply that budget somewhere that we have a chance of finding success. And, and it's, a really, it's a really delicate dance and you don't want to upset people and you're not trying to offend people or you know, kind of um, rescind offers that you made in good faith. But at the same time, they're also playing a game too. You know, they may never, they may have zero, uh, zero, I'm trying to think of the right word, um, 0% chance that they're going to take your offer, right? They're not even considering, seriously considering your offer. It's just a negotiating piece. In some cases, that happens. That happens all the time. So for me, I, I need to know that. I need to figure that out without them telling me. I kind of need to read the tea leaves and read, you know, whatever cliche you want to use there, uh, read between the lines and, uh, move on to a situation that is likely to work. So those teams that are all open, we're talking to all of them as a brand. Um, I'm trying to reach out to anyone and everyone, individual riders, teams, OEMs, everybody that'll listen because fly racing is really, we're, we're very aggressive right now. We're trying to get more and more involved. And I personally feel that Europe as a whole is a, a really important market for us that we're not making the most of yet. Like it's my personal goal for our brand to become much stronger in, you know, Western Europe. So I, I'm trying really hard to get us more involved in there. And uh, so, yeah, for some of you that don't care, I apologize for going into so much depth there, but I think it's super interesting, all of the intricacies and the behind the scenes jockeying that's going on, the phone calls, the emails, everybody's playing each other off of each other and we all kind of know it, but you're trying to figure out, okay, are they serious or are they just kind of using me? And and not in a bad way. It's not like they're malicious about it. It's just how the game works. It's just part of the negotiation process. Uh, So just gives a little bit of insight into what my daily life is like. Typically when I wake up, you know, I I get up really early. I get up like 3.30, 3.45. I will have WhatsApp messages from Europe. People are, you know, I I would expect some overnight tonight after the race, you know, they'll, as they go into Monday, kicking off their week, they'll probably be reaching out. This happened, this happened. We got this offer. Can you match this? Blah, blah, blah. And uh, yeah, I'll have meetings tomorrow and we'll go through, we'll go through our options and possibilities and how do we want to respond? And yeah, how do we want to move our chess pieces around, uh, you know, to to basically corresponding to the things that are happening over there, right? If I was have been there this weekend in Spain, I would have been much more involved, you know, and that's a big reason why I'm going back. Of course, I want to do the TV thing. That's great. I really enjoy it. It's important for fly racing to, to have that presence, but it's also critically important to have boots on the ground and be in these discussions and in these meetings in person to let them know just how serious you are about these offers, right? And you want to be a presence. You want to be a partner with these teams. Showing up in person is critically important, right? And you think about the business world, about people, you know, like executives and sales, big account managers, they fly around the world. Like they'll fly 
to Germany and all these places to have like literally like a two hour meeting. They'll fly to Europe and, and COVID has changed some of that, right? There's a lot of Zoom stuff happening and I, and I get that, but it's coming back. Like it's not, it's not permanent. I don't believe not in every case. There is so, there is so much kind of gravity in a in-person meeting. Things just happen, right? On the golf course, in a boardroom, that one-on-one experience where you're looking each other in the eye, there's just a different dynamic and a different um, level of seriousness that I think deal-making stuff happens like that. And, and it's no different for me. When I go back next weekend, my, my, uh, they will take the offers much more seriously if I'm there in person making them and you know, I'm walking them through the plan of how we would execute our marketing strategy and all those things with that team. So anyway, my bad. That's just kind of what I, I wanted to talk about silly season stuff, but uh, it's apparel, it's helmets, goggles, boots, like all that stuff is wild times over there right now. There are offers flying in every direction from every brand uh, kind of as we speak. So that's it for this week. Um, looking forward to heading back to Italy on Thursday. I will do uh, the podcast from Italy uh, over the weekend. And uh, I do a Patreon podcast as well. I'll do that Sunday morning before MXGP. Uh, so when you guys wake up in America, it will be live. And it's uh, patreon.com slash industry seating. If you want to check that out, it's, uh, you know, race day morning updates, what's going on, what I expect to happen type stuff. Thanks again to the sponsors, though. Pirelli Tires, Plum Creek Funding, Guts Racing, Fast Foundry, Works Connection, Blenzol, Premier Vapor Blasting 612 Suspension, Pro Glow Wash, Grant Stone Boots, and Fly Racing. And I did want to mention uh, on the Plum Creek funding side, uh, there's a lot of things happening behind the scenes with Jumbo Loans. So they have brought down the minimum requirements for Jumbo Loans. And if you've looked at housing prices lately, most loans are kind of in that Jumbo Loan category these days. It used to be 20% down on a jumbo loan. It was the only way you could qualify. And I think it's over 650K, something like that. They've lowered the minimum requirements for both the down payment and what qualifies as a jumbo loan. So reach out to Zach Morris at Plum Creek Funding uh, on Instagram. You can also call his cell at 720-212-4685, or you can just reach out to me personally and I'll, I'll set you up with him. But that's a really great opportunity for those of you who are looking to buy a house and you're like, dang, jumbo loan, like that's what I, I'm in now because housing prices are so high. I can't, you know, think about 20% down of 650K, it's over 100 grand. You know, like that's a lot of freaking money to come up with for a down payment. Well, that's changed. That, that rule has now been adjusted. So it presents a pretty nice opportunity to, uh, to get into that same home that you wanted to get into. Anyway, that's it for this week. Thank you to everyone. Thanks to all the sponsors and we will talk to you in a week. See ya. Stay